Matthew chapter 9 and uh, verses 18 to 34 uh, in the church Bibles, that's page 974. And if you have a large print, that's page 1513. Matthew chapter 9, and this morning we're going to look from verses 18 to verse 34. When when we looked at the video earlier on, uh, I mentioned that it should help us uh, to have faith and to to trust that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. And to have faith in something is uh, is to have complete trust in someone or in something. Uh, Everybody... Who, who lives is putting their faith in something or in someone. And everybody is doing that certainly for their life and for life after death. We all have faith in someone or something in life and in life after death. And Matthew is writing his gospel to show us that Jesus is the only one who is worthy of our faith for life and for life after death. Because Jesus is the God who has come to save us from our sins, which is the big problem that we have. Sin separates us from God and separates us from the God who gives life and it separates us from him and from him in eternity in hell. That's the big problem. That's what we want to escape. That's why we need faith in Jesus Christ. And Matthew shows us, and we've been looking at this in our evening services, he shows us through his gospel that Jesus Christ is king. He is the God who we must have faith in. After the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus explained what life in his eternal kingdom looks like, the people responded to Jesus with words like this in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 28 and 29. If you just turn back a couple of pages, you'll see these words. It says, The crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Who is this man who speaks like this? Well, Matthew has been unfolding the answer to this in chapters 8 and 9, which we've looked at in the evening services. The man who speaks with this kind of authority is a man who we see healing the leper, the centurion's servant, and many who come to him for healing. This man who speaks like this is the man with words that calms storms and casts out demons. The man who speaks like this is the man who can forgive sins. All of these things are what only God can do. Matthew is showing us Jesus is God. And how ought we to respond to this man? Well, the sequence of miracles you'll notice in Matthew chapter 8 and and chapter 9 are broken up into mini conversations about discipleship. So in chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, you hear Jesus say that following him demands that we give everything we have. 
And in chapter 9, verses 9 to 17, we learn that following Jesus means that we cannot rely on our own righteousness, but we've got to depend on him and him alone for our salvation. It's a wonderful account to show who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Again, Matthew's big point is Jesus has authority because he is God. And this morning we see the the climax of this section. Now Matthew, as he writes his gospel, he doesn't write chronologically. He writes uh, uh, his gospel putting events together to make his big point, which is Jesus is king. He's rather like a film director. He takes the scenes and puts them together to make his big point. And in this section of Matthew's Gospel, he is coming to the crescendo of the film. If if you watch a movie, you've got uh, an action movie, which would be the kind of movie this is. Uh, You've got the the little fights that go on, and then you've got the big fight at the end. That's what Matthew's doing. He's having a big climax, a big crescendo that says, this is the king. Jesus is God. We've seen the, they're not little things, they are big things, but Matthew builds up to this section here where he shows us once and for all, this is the king. And as Matthew writes these words, he is showing us that we have to have faith in God's Messiah. Messiah or Christ, by the way, that means anointed one. And it's talking about God's anointed king that was promised in the Old Testament that we read in Isaiah chapter 35. Or as Matthew writes in his first chapter, that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And we see here in these verses, Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 34, Jesus saving and restoring people who are in desperate need of his salvation. So let me read you the the passage, Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 34. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And the crowd, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. 
While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. This is God's word. We see people here, three uh, different accounts of people in desperate, desperate situations. And they are in need of salvation and restoration. And first of all, we see in this passage that this man, Jesus, who is God, saves and restores. Verse 18 follows on from the, the previous conversation that Jesus has been having. Uh, because this is a, a fast-paced section. You see Jesus healing or performing other miracles, having conversations, and then the next thing goes on. It's very, very, a very busy section of the gospel. And a synagogue leader or a synagogue ruler comes and kneels before Jesus. Uh, a synagogue ruler, one of the religious leaders of the area, uh, was not generally a group of people who were favourable to Jesus. You'll know as you read the Gospels that people who were leaders of the Jewish religion generally were opposed to Jesus. They were his biggest critics. But here we are, a synagogue ruler comes and pleads with Jesus. His opposition is all forgotten because he is desperate, because his daughter, it says here, has died. Whatever his previous feelings about Jesus, whatever they may or may or not have been, at this point he believes in the power of Christ to, re- to heal his daughter, to raise her from the dead. Notice his faith in verse 18. But come and put your hand on her and she will live. Put your hand on her. It's the hand of Jesus that can bring this girl back to life. Let us be clear here. This man believed Jesus could raise the dead. That Jesus had a power over death that in this gospel we have yet not seen. This man has faith in Jesus. And Jesus has compassion on the man. He he gets up and in verse 19 he goes with him. Now the reader of of this account is left wondering... Can Jesus do this? Can he really bring people back to life again? He's done so many other things in these passages, but this is death. Can Jesus do this? And as the reader is wondering, in verse 20, we get this interruption. It says, just then, a woman. Here's another woman. The first woman is the dead girl who needs salvation. And here is another woman who, although not dead... She is defiled. It says she's been subject to bleeding, which probably describes some kind of menstrual problem. And this would have made her ceremonially unclean. And so she would not have been able to take part in the religious life of the community. She would have been ostracized from other people, a complete social outcast. And it's been going on for 12 years. Can you imagine? Twelve years where no one can talk to you. No one even would look at you. She wouldn't even normally have approached anybody, let alone touched anybody. But again, like the father a moment ago, notice her faith. 
in verse 21. If only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. His cloak. Like the father, the focus of the faith is who? Your hand, Jesus, your hand. His cloak, Jesus' cloak. There is no magic in Jesus' cloak. We don't read anywhere that Jesus wore supernatural clothing. But there is power in the person of Jesus. And in fact, the Greek word that's used here for healed is actually a word that also is translated save. She is literally asking Jesus, save me, restore me. Or in the authorised version, it says, if I touch his garment, I shall be whole. So Matthew sets this up for us. This film director, you've got this scene. You have a synagogue ruler whose daughter is dead and a defiled woman. Both have faith in Jesus to save from death and defilement. And the question is this, can Jesus do this? Well, verses 22 to 26 show us. Verse 22 continues with the story of the defiled woman. It says, Jesus turned and saw her. In other words, he gives this woman, who is ostracized from everybody else, her, his full attention. His full attention is on this poor woman, which is a lovely gesture to someone who has been shunned for 12 years. Finally, there is someone who is giving her attention. And notice these words of encouragement. Take heart, daughter, he says. Take heart, daughter. You may remember that take heart was what Jesus said to the man who he forgave of his sins in chapter 9 and verse 2. It's a word of encouragement for her. Be encouraged or be assured, daughter. Your, your faith in me is enough. And he says, your faith has healed you, or your faith has saved you. Faith in Jesus Christ has saved this woman. Now, she doesn't have bold faith. In fact, it seems she's very timid. She's, she seems to approach Jesus uh, from behind. She doesn't call out his name. Her faith even seems to be so weak that she believes that there's some kind of power in the garment. But her faith in Jesus, although very small, is enough. Because it says that she was healed at that very moment. She was restored to a relationship with God and relationship with the community of God's people because she had faith in Jesus, even though it was small. Notice here that the amount of faith isn't important, rather, who the faith is in. By way of example, or an illustration here, recently uh, it's been snowing in Pelsall. And if you had been uh, down to the canal, you would have noticed that the canal was frozen over. Now, I could have loads of faith that when I jump on that canal... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slide across to the other end and have a great time. But if I tried, even if I hadn't eaten all the chocolate over Easter, if I had jumped on that canal, 
you all know what would have happened. And it's not because you think I'm overweight. It's because the ice layer is not all that thick. But if I was to get on a boat and go to Antarctica, and I was to get out of the boat, and even though I was really timid and I was a bit worried of what might happen, and I was to step out onto that ice, well, I'm not going to fall through there because the ice is as thick as this building. I could jump up and down on that ice, having eaten all the Easter eggs from the supermarket, and I would be just fine. That ice would hold me. It's not the amount of faith that's important. It's what the faith is in. Jesus is who we have faith in. Because Jesus is like that big, thick ice. He's firm, he's stable, he's reliable, he's risen from the dead. It holds us. The point is not how much faith, it's who your faith is in. And if it's in, is it in something firm, something true, something that's going to bring you to re- the restoration with God that you need? This woman didn't have lots of faith, but she had faith in the right person. Now, of course, our faith ought to grow in Jesus. Our faith ought to grow that we become bolder and bolder in our trust in him. But we become bolder in our faith, not because Jesus changes, he never changes. But we learn more of him and realise he is worthy to have faith in. You can be sure that this woman wouldn't be so timid next time. And here we are, in our day, with God's word open before us. The accounts of all that Jesus, not all that Jesus did, but some of what Jesus did. We have this reliable account before us. We have no need to be timid in our faith. We can trust that Jesus is who he says he is. And Jesus, when we call out to him, he gives us his full attention. He says, take heart, son or or daughter. And he provides what we need at that moment. Now, some of you this morning may be feeling like this woman, downcast, beaten up by trials that may have been going on for years. Put your faith in Jesus. He may not heal you right away. Things may not get better at that very moment. But we know from his word that he always helps us through our trials. And at the very end, things are made right. But what about the dead girl? I mean, I can't imagine what this father must have been feeling when Jesus was on his way and he stopped by this woman. Was the father right to have faith in Jesus? Well, the story picks up again in verse 23. It says there that Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and there is quite a scene when he arrives. Uh, In in the Western world, our funerals are very quiet, aren't they? They're somber uh, affairs. But if you go to the the, the Middle East, you even see on the news, don't you, their funerals are very different. They do things there much more noisily than we do. And at this time uh, where Jesus was, there were actually professional mourners. I don't know if it still happens today. It may do. But there were professional mourners that were hired for the purpose of mourning. And they were hired to wail and to play funeral music. And where it says there that they were playing pipes, the pipes actually uh, were flutes. And as I was preparing this, I was thinking, 
But the flute is such a happy instrument. When our uh, flautists, right, when they play uh, their flutes, it always sounds so lovely and joyful. And I couldn't understand, well, what does it sound like when you play a funeral uh, like a dirge. But actually, this last week when we were on holiday at Word Alive, there was a lady that played the flute um, as they used to play uh, when they were slaves. And it was really moving and really just like would have been going on here. A really, a, a, a real dirge of a sound. That was what Jesus arrived to. Loud wailing and funeral uh, music, very sad and somber, um, although very noisy. That's the scene as Jesus comes to the house. Uh, but then Jesus fires a lot of these professional mourners. He's, he, he, I mean, he doesn't say you're fired, but he does say, go away, go away. And why does he say go away? He says because the girl's not dead but asleep. In other words, you guys are just not appropriate right now. If she was going to be dead forever, then yes, this is right. But go away, you're inappropriate, you're fired because she's not dead, she's asleep. Now, make no mistake, this girl was dead. She was not having a daytime nap. In fact, I read one uh, liberal commentator that was so stupid. He said, um, oh, thank goodness Jesus came. She was in a coma and then we're going to bury her alive. Nothing like that was going on. It was such ridiculous. He, she was dead. This girl was dead. But Jesus was saying her death was not permanent. No wonder, though, the professionals laughed at him. Interesting to note, by the way, how professional these mourners are, how they can change from wailing and playing the flute to laughing. But you can see their point. They know what dead is. And this girl was dead. But unlike the dead girl's father, the professional mourners didn't have faith in Jesus. So the crowd were put outside. Jesus is alone with the girl. He takes her hand and she gets up. The faith in Jesus is justified. He raises the dead. Faith in Jesus Christ restores us to life and communion with God. And raising the dead is significant because... The New Testament epistles talk about spiritual death and life in the same way as Jesus does here. Death, physical and spiritual, are in the world because of sin. And spiritually, all of us are dead and defiled like these two women here. That is, we are separated from God because of our sin. We are heading for hell and there is no way we can save ourselves. Just like a dead person cannot raise themselves from the dead. But Jesus comes to save us from our sins. He died on the cross. He suffered hell for us. And he rose from the dead so we can be restored to fellowship with God again and made spiritually alive. As the apostles claimed, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we may be saved. Only Jesus can save us from spiritual and later physical death. But faith in Jesus does have a physical aspect too. The professional mourners laughed at Jesus when he said that she was asleep. But actually, sleep is a common Bible term to describe a Christian death. 
Listen to these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll show them uh, on the screen. This is Paul writing. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Notice here, do not grieve like the rest of mankind. You don't need to be like the professional mourners. Because a Christian is asleep. They will rise again. When a Christian dies, they are buried in the ground and there is a sense of loss. Of course there is. But for a Christian, there is hope. Because as we come to a Christian funeral, we remember that this person will be raised from the dead and will be with Jesus in heaven forever. That's our hope. Hallelujah. Well, Jesus, throughout chapters 8 and 9, has healed many. He's cast out demons. He's calmed the storm. He's forgiven sins. He's raised the dead. What else does Matthew need to say? At the end of this section, though, Matthew records two more miracles. And as you read this, you think, if you think of him as a film director, you think this is strange. Because you think, well, he's just raised the dead. What more does Matthew need to do to show us that Jesus is God? I mean, you know in a film, if you've got the action movie, you have the big fight at the end. And the Bible even talks about death being the last enemy. And here in verses 27 to 24, you can, at first reading, think, well, this is a bit of an anticlimax. You've got the healing of two blind men and a mute man. What's going on here? Well, what's going on is Matthew is finishing with a flourish that shows us that Jesus is God's Messiah. Well, how is this a final flourish? Well, it begins with the way that these two men are calling out to Jesus. Look at verse 27 again. The two blind men following Jesus call out to him, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, this is the first time the name son of David has, is given for Jesus. And it's a really important title. It's the title of the Messiah. Matthew, in fact, begins his gospel like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the first words of Matthew's Gospel. The son of David is the Messiah. And this is the first time in this Gospel that anybody calls Jesus son of David. These blind men are calling on the Messiah to have mercy on them. They are blind, but they see something... But many others are not seeing. Jesus is God's Messiah. And it's because Jesus is God's Messiah that they are asking him to have mercy on them as blind men. An interesting bit of Bible trivia for you. In the Old Testament, there are plenty of miracles. But there is not one case of a blind man having his sight restored or her sight restored. Or a new person having their tongue loosened. Not one case in the whole of the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, what is the miracle that Jesus performs more than any other? Opening the eyes of the blind. That's important. Why? 
Because restoring sight to the blind is what Messiah does. Listen again to these words from Isaiah uh, 35. This is what happens when Messiah comes. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The two blind men are calling on the son of David because they believe Jesus is the Messiah. And because he's the Messiah, he can restore their sight. In the Old Testament, the dead are raised. We saw that in Kings as uh, the the, the, uh, son is raised to life, the widow's son. But no one's sight's restored because the Messiah will do this. The reader was left to question in the previous section, can Jesus save and restore the dead and defiled women? In this section, the reader is asking, is this the son of David? Is Jesus God's Messiah? And we find the answer in verses 28 to 30. He takes them indoors so that they're on their own, just like he did, by the way, with the dead girl. Everyone else is out. And he asked them in verse 28, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Am I, Jesus, able to do this? Do you have faith that I, Jesus, am the Messiah? And the blind men make a confession of faith. Yes, Lord, they replied. In other words, yes, we believe you are the Messiah, Jesus. And they confess that he was the Messiah... And when they did this confession, Jesus touches their eyes and he says in verse 29, According to your faith, let it be done to you. Again, it's not the amount of faith. It's who they have faith in. They believe Jesus is Messiah. He's saying, since you have faith, or since your faith extends to the point where you believe I am the Messiah, your sight is restored. Paul says in, chapter, in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But then we have this strange uh, statement at the end of verse 30. But look at what Jesus says. He warns them sternly, see that no one knows about this. That warning is a very strong warning. Very strong. Why did Jesus not want anyone to know? Jesus not wanting people to know his full identity is shown not just in what he says here, but also in the fact that he took the men and healed them in private after they were calling out Son of David. So they're saying, you're the Messiah, show us you're the Messiah by healing our, uh, restoring our sight, and he takes them in private, away from everyone else, so no one can see him restoring their sight. Why is he doing this? Why the the secrecy? Well, most uh, commentators agree that people's expectation of Messiah was so political in that they wanted a Messiah to destroy the power of Rome that it would distract Jesus from his true mission which was destroy the power of sin and death. 
People knew that only Messiah restores sight to the blind. And they would make this link. And so Jesus wanted them to keep quiet. The men had faith in who he was. But, he, but that faith didn't lead to obedience, did it? Look at verse 31. They, they, they went and told everybody. Now in one sense, we should be telling everyone about Jesus. We don't read this and say, well, well I've, I've got to keep quiet then. I better not tell anybody. But sometimes I think we can apply this by saying that we can do things perhaps in the wrong way. When we speak of Christ, we can perhaps do so unthinkingly and be too quick to speak and end up maybe damaging our witness in some way, rather than leading people to point to Jesus and what he really came for, which is to save us from sin. Something to think about, not maybe discuss over coffee at the end, not that we shouldn't talk about Jesus, but that we need to think about how we talk about Jesus. Well, Jesus heals the blind, and in verse 32, he heals the mute. Not much detail is given here. uh, The man is demon-possessed, and he cannot speak. And Jesus casts out the demon, and and the mute man speaks. But the, the point again is this. Jesus is the Messiah. This is what Messiah does when Messiah comes. And that's why Matthew ends with these. It's no anticlimax. This is Matthew showing that Jesus is the one who has come to do what God has promised all those thousands of years before. Ultimately, Jesus fulfills the promises that there is a king that has come, who is God's forever king that saves us from sin. This is why the people responded as they do, by the way, at the end of verse 33. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Nothing like this had ever been seen in Israel. Because the eyes of the blind had never been restored, and the tongues of the mute had never been loosened. It hadn't been seen before, because God's promised Messiah has not come before. We can trust that Jesus Christ is King. And the question uh, for you is, what, who or what else is your faith in? Is your faith in something else? Because if it is, that something else is that thin layer of ice that it's just not going to hold. Only Jesus can save us from sin and bring us into his glorious kingdom forever. In a similar way uh, to being dead, being blind is also used in the New Testament to describe our spiritual state. We cannot see the truth about God and about Jesus unless... Jesus opens our eyes to the truth of who he is and what he has done. And so we need to cry out to God, Have mercy on me, son of David. Open my eyes that I may see who you are, that I can be forgiven of my sins and restored to fellowship with God again. As you come to read the Bible, as you come to listen to a sermon... Ask God, Son of David, have mercy on me. Open my eyes. You know, every time, every time that you understand anything in the Bible, every time you understand anything in a sermon, it is always God's mercy. Always God's mercy. You have no right to understand anything about God. It should all be gobbledygook, except he opens our eyes. And so come to church 
Asking God for the mercy to open your eyes that you would see who God is. But notice too the earnestness of these men. They didn't just come and have some kind of timid prayer. They pleaded with him. There was a a desperation for their eyes to be opened. And that's a challenge to all of us, isn't it? How desperate are you for God to open your eyes? How earnest are we when we come to, to, to God's word for him to open our eyes that we would see? Well, earnestness was the response of the blind men and amazement was the response of the crowds. But look at the response of the Pharisees in verse 34. The Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Well, this comes on, uh, comes up later on in Matthew chapter 12 uh, in a lot more detail. So I'm not going to go into too much detail here except to say uh, in, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus explains what stupid reasoning this is. Why would Satan drive out a demon who is against God. He wouldn't do that. It's the, the, what the Pharisees are doing is creating a cynical excuse to explain away the reality of what Jesus is doing. And this happens all the time, doesn't it? We looked earlier at the video about the resurrection and we saw there some excuses, didn't we? It was a conspiracy. It was a, a hallucination. Science or archaeology has shown God doesn't exist. All of those are just as foolish excuses as the Pharisees are making up here. The Pharisees could not deny what was going on. Beneath the poor excuse was a rebellious heart. If you read the Gospels and you see the opposition of the Pharisees, notice one thing they never, ever, ever do. They never deny that Jesus did anything that he did. They never deny it. Even the resurrection, they have to make up at the end of Matthew's Gospel a conspiracy so that people won't think he really has risen. But they never deny the miracles of Jesus. Here they're just saying, well, they're from the devil. Their problem was not lack of evidence. Their problem was a rebellious heart. They didn't want to believe because if Jesus' claims were real, then their whole world would change. They would not be in control of it. Their life would be uncomfortable. They would have to submit to Jesus Christ as their king. And it's the same for us today. There is no lack of evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. But there is rebellion of heart. Matthew has shown us here that Jesus is God's Messiah. We all have faith in something or someone. But only Jesus is worthy of it. But as we close, let me just give a couple of pointers. Just to say, how do we put our faith in Jesus? In the context of Matthew chapter 8 and 9, uh, Jesus actually has told us what putting our faith in him looks like. First of all, we're to give our whole lives and every area of our lives in submission to his rule. As Jesus expects us to. He talks in chapter 8 verses 18 uh, to 22 about the cost of following him. When he calls Matthew the tax collector, 
He calls Matthew to follow him. Matthew leaves it all behind. It's easy to say, I have faith in Jesus. But in what areas of, of our lives are perhaps not showing what our lips are professing? Giving our whole lives, that's how we have faith. But second, the next bit of discipleship discourse that Jesus gives in chapter 9 there is uh, this meal at the, Pharise- at the tax collector's home and the Pharisees are really angry that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus calls us really to love other sinners as well. And he showed by eating with tax collectors and sinners that he loves even those that are the worst of sinners. And even in the passage today, we see Jesus showing compassion and love to those who are outsiders, those who are downcast. Are you showing compassion and love to others like Jesus is here? That's how we put action to the faith that we profess. May God open our eyes more and more to the truth of who Jesus is. Only he can save us from sin and only he can give us eternal life. So let us all, with all of our hearts, put all of our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King. Well, in response to this, let us uh, stand and sing. Uh, we're going to sing by faith. Fixing our talks about fixing our eyes on Christ, our King, giving our all for Him. So let's stand as we sing.